scripture reading, we will turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read the first 21 verses. Our text will come from verse 9 as we continue our study of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may, be, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed... Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward." But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. As far as scripture reading for this morning, and in connection with the scripture reading, we'll also consider the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 47, which you can find on page 84 in the back section of the Psalter. Page 84 in the back section of the Psalter. It's Lord's Day 47. And question 122. 
It asks, what is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? And the answer is, hallowed be thy name. That is, grant us first rightly to know thee, and to sanctify, glorify, and praise thee in all thy works, in which thy power, wisdom, goodness, justice, mercy, and truth are clearly displayed. And further also that we may so order and direct our whole lives, our thoughts, words, and actions, that thy name may never be blasphemed, but rather honored and praised on our account. Dear congregation, as we continue our study of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus Jesus teaches us how to pray by providing this pattern in the Lord's Prayer for how to structure our prayers as we draw near to Him. And if you look at Matthew 6, verse 9, He says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Last Sunday, you remember, we considered how we are to approach God in prayer. We need to come, first of all, with that confidence as a child comes to their father. There needs to be that full confidence that God hears us and will answer us, and also that we may find acceptance with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to Him trusting that He will hear us. We also must come with reverence because He is God enthroned in heaven, the mighty, the creator, the majestic God who sits enthroned in heaven above, the God who cannot tolerate sin, who cannot look upon sin and must punish all sin. And so we must come with that utmost reverence that we come to a holy God. And He's the one who controls everything with His hand and in His providence. But we can come knowing that in the Lord Jesus Christ, There is that provision for sin. That he was crucified on the cross to pay for that penalty of sin. And we come with that confidence knowing that we can find that forgiveness. Coming with that confidence knowing that he says he will not refuse to give his Holy Spirit to those who ask it of him. To enable us by his Spirit to do his will. And so now we come to the first petition of this prayer. And he teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. You see, first of all, it doesn't have to do with us so much, but with God. It begins with hallowing God's name. And that's our theme for this morning, praying for God's name. I'm going to have three thoughts. First, it's a name to be hallowed. Secondly, it's a name to be known. And thirdly, it's a name to be acknowledged. So first, a name to be hallowed. What does it mean to hallow God's name? Well, to hallow really means to to reverence or to to honor as holy. If we if we hallow God's name, we have a sense of His majesty or of His of His holiness. Then we give to God that glory and that honor that that is due His name that that He's worth, and that's. We, we use the, word, the term worship. It means giving God what He is worth. And so this petition is praying that God's name may be esteemed as, as supremely holy and that He will be acknowledged not only by us, but by all the world as well. 
And so hallowing God's name is, is holding, it in, holding it in a special place. It's sanctifying God's name. And sanctifying, and when we think of sanctifying, it means to really to separate. It's in its own category. But even with sanctifying, you can think of that in two ways. You can think of a horizontal uh, uh, sanctifying, and that is separated from its surroundings. You can think of the church of God. It's, it's separated from this world. It's sanctified. When, when children are baptized, they're referred to as being sanctified or holy. They're separated from this world. You're part of the church. And, and so there's a we're, we're called to live separate. We're called to live a moral life according to God's Word. And so there's, in a sense, a, a horizontal separation. But there's also the idea of a vertical sense of sanctifying. And that means elevating or honoring something above everything else. If you've ever seen Mount Rushmore, you, you drive by and you see the, the president's carved into the mountain. And there's also in Georgia, there's another mountain as a carving of a president and, and two generals on a big granite wall. It's a Confederate memorial carving. Now these statues, they, they honor these men for what they've accomplished in their lives or who they were. And in a sense, they've been elevated, they've been honored above others. And this is, you can think of this as how you hallow God's name. It's to sanctify, to elevate God's name, even in a greater sense above anything else in this world. It's uh, lifted up above every other name. There's a vertical sanctifying. Now when we hallow God's name, we do not increase His honor the more we hallow it. And if we fail to hallow God's name, we don't decrease God's majesty because God is unchangeable. His honor, His glory, and His majesty remain perfect and, and supreme in all things. But when we sanctify and glorify God's name, we, we elevate it. We admire His holiness and His attributes above everything else. And with doing so, we also declare His name to others who hear it. And so it reveals God. And when you, when you drive by those mountains, you see those carvings, it, it really is declaring to you these, these men. It's saying something about who they were or what they did. And, and this is what hallowing God's name does. It declares to the world who God is and what God continues to do. But on the other hand, we also need, if we're called to hallow God's name... We also need to consider what it means to do the opposite. If we do not hallow God's name, we must avoid doing things that would not hallow His name. In some countries, even in the history of our own North America here, there have been statues that have been pulled down. Statues of old leaders have been pulled down or broken down. They no longer want to see them. They no longer want to remember them. Then they're dishonored and they're removed. And in our own nation, in a very real way, this is happening with God. They're trying to remove God, to pull Him down. They've taken His laws and as the Lord's Prayer out of the schools, out of the public schools and out of the court systems, out of the government functions. They've, they've pulled God down to remove His name instead of hallowing it. The third commandment specifically speaks, you shall 
not take the name of the Lord in vain. So the misuse or abuse of God's name is the opposite of hallowing. It's the profaning of his name. But Christians also who are mindful of these things also can be guilty of misusing God's name. And when we come to him irreverently, without a proper reverence to who he is, and we don't hallow him as we should, or if we use his name flippantly or with no value or no respect, there's an emptiness to the words that we use and has no meaning. If you address him merely as a common friend that you'd meet down the street without that high reverence and godly fear that he is supremely holy. We don't properly hallow his name if we don't have that, that urgency and that need when we come to him as we heard last week. When, when it really doesn't make a difference if God hears our prayers or not to us. When there's no need for that real communion with the living God. When there's no real need for forgiveness or for salvation or eternal life from him. And we can't really hallow God's name if we don't really know who God is, if we have no concept of who he is. For Canadians, and so it was for me when I stood in front of this Confederate memorial carving, it really didn't mean anything to me. Who are these men? What did they do? I didn't appreciate the history because I didn't know it. And the question is, do we know God when we stand in front of him? If we do not hallow God's name, if we don't worship him as he requires of us. And in order to do that, we have to have a right concept of who God is and what he requires in his word. And public worship in a special way honors God's name. And it distinguishes the church from those who do not belong to God. And so he teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. And so we must hallow God's name because it is by his name specifically that we know him and how he reveals us to himself to us. And that's what we see in the second thought, a name to be known. Because how can we truly know God or hallow God if we don't know God? And we know from his word that he reveals himself to us by his names. And all these statutes in the, or statues in the mountains don't mean anything to us unless we know who they are. And we can know who they are by finding out who their names were and then by finding out what they did. We can learn that these men on the Confederate memorial carving were President Jefferson Davis and General Robert Lee and Thomas Stonewall Jackson. And then you know who they are, what their names were, and then you can research further what they actually did in in the Civil War. And so God also reveals himself to us by his names and by what he does. And this is where I want to draw in from the catechism as well that we read earlier. If you want to turn to it again on page 84 in the back of your Psalter, that first petition says, Hallowed be thy name. That is, grant us first rightly to know thee. Grant us first rightly to know thee. We need to know God before we can hallow his name and to sanctify and glorify and praise thee in all thy works in which thy power, wisdom, goodness, 
justice, mercy, and truth are clearly displayed. And further also that we may so order and direct our whole lives, our thoughts, words, and actions, that thy name may never be blasphemed, but rather honored and praised on our account. So how do we then come to know God? I already mentioned it, sort of, but we, he, in two main ways he reveals himself. And the first is creation. Creation glorifies God. It shows us that there is a creator. It shows us his power and majesty and the wisdom of God. But creation itself doesn't teach us how to know God. It's like driving past these carved mountains and saying, well, that must have been an important person, but it doesn't show you anything else. When you, when you see the creation, you see the nature, you see the beauty of the flowers, the intricacy, the wisdom and the power in it. You see the, the preciousness of life when a new baby is born and it demonstrates its power when, when you see the storms and you, you see the seasons of the year going by. You see there's a purpose and a cycle to everything. But it leaves you saying there must be a creator. There must be a God. But that is why, secondly, God also gave us his word. Because in his word, in the Bible, is where he reveals his names to us. And when you go to the interpretive centers, you can read the names on the plaques. You can read the signs that tell you about these people and what they did. And the Bible is our interpretive center to tell us to the names of God and the history of the world, and even more, the future of the world and eternity to come. And so the Bible really tells us who God is by his names and what he is doing. The first words in the Bible are, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And everything we know about God is found in the scriptures. And that's why, children, we have to read the Bible every day. We need, to, we need to study the Bible. We need to learn the Bible. Because if we don't know the Bible, we won't come to know God. And if we do not know the Lord, we cannot hallow His name. And so what does it mean then to know God? Because just knowing the Bible also is not enough. There's a big difference between knowing the Bible... And knowing the God who reveals himself in the Bible. You have to start by studying the Bible. But you can know a lot about the Bible and still not know God. We could read about, we can read everything there is about President Davis. And everything that he did. You can memorize all of that history. And still you would not know these men personally. You know a lot about them, but you still would not know them. The scribes and the Pharisees they, that, that Jesus is speaking about here, they, they knew the Bible as well. They studied the Bible. They, this word scribe really means learned in the Scriptures. They memorized much of the Bible. They made much, many of their own rules to help them try to keep the laws of God. They're trying to work hard to be accepted by God. But they did not know God. Some of them later even came up to Jesus and asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? They realized with all their efforts, all their trying, they they still came short. They couldn't be perfect. And they were never sure if they had done enough. And so it is with studying history. You never know if you have God at all. And so knowledge of the Bible is important, but it's not enough. We can believe that God exists. 
That's apparent from creation and Scripture. And there's so many different religions in this world because everyone is trying in their own way to look for God, to look for purpose, to look for where they've come from or where they're going. But the Bible says in James 2, you believe that there is one God and you do well, but even the demons believe and tremble. So the question is, do we even tremble knowing that there is a God, knowing that we will have to stand before a living God one day? But knowledge about God, who, what God is like is not enough. Knowing all his titles and all his names and all his attributes that describe who God is and what he does. And that's how he reveals himself. In Exodus 34, God revealed himself to Moses by showing his goodness. And he said to Moses in Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. We need to know this God that there is forgiveness, that we can go to Him, that we can find forgiveness with Him. And Romans 2 says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? We need to know that He is willing to receive sinners, that, that it is His goodness that draws you to Him. But even that, we still come short of knowing Him. Because we still have questions in our hearts. How can God be good? Why can God be good? How can He be holy? How can He be righteous? How can He be just and also punish sin and still be good and still be loving? And how can He be good to me? Because I have sinned. Because I have come short in all kinds of ways. And this is also where He reveals Himself through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what the Lord Jesus said? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this, is we learn, this is where we learn how the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, children. How he was born into the world. How he lived a perfect life without sin. How he was tempted in every way, yet without falling into sin. How he was falsely accused and how he was crucified on the cross and how he died. But do you know that it is there that God's infinite goodness and God's justice came together? Where He punished sin in the Lord Jesus Christ? Where His wrath was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ? And there His wrath also was taken away because there that penalty was paid for. There God's justice was satisfied and God's anger could be turned away. And then God's love and God's mercy could could shine down upon His people again in the Lord Jesus. And it is because the Lord Jesus Christ died, because the Lord Jesus Christ came, that, that you and I can be forgiven. That now there is free access to God because of what the Lord Jesus has done for all who trust in Him, for all who come to God through the Lord Jesus. And it says, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. There's free access. This is where God takes away all the sins of His people. This is where God gives that perfect righteousness, that holiness that we need to stand before God. 
But still, knowing this in our mind, knowing that Christ died for sinners, and knowing that God has opened a way for sinners to go to God, is still not the same as you going to God. And you knowing this forgiveness. And you finding this forgiveness for yourself. And knowing God for yourself. Knowing that you have sinned against God. Knowing that you and I are guilty of breaking every commandment. It's not the same as, as knowing that God has forgiven you for all those sins. And this is why he's, we must pray, hallowed be your name. Teach us first rightly to know you so that I can rightly hallow your name. And so knowing God consists of that, that personal, that experiential knowledge of God himself, the living God in heaven who says he forgives iniquity through thousands of generations. See, if you lived under the leadership of these generals and under this president's, and if you've tasted of some of the victories that they've won in, the, in their battles and, and the peace that followed in the country, then you know a little bit of what they did. You know a little bit of what, what, who they were and what they did. But still there's that, if you've never been their close friend, if you've never talked to them, if you never sat around a table with them, if you never had a personal connection with them, you still don't know them personally. But the knowledge of God of the scripture is a knowledge that God teaches you by his Holy Spirit to know him personally as a living and a holy God. It's in personal knowledge that you or I as a poor sinner are able to acknowledge this God as our father, as our redeemer, as our savior. That he is the one who even now upholds you and strengthens you and guides you in every part of your life. That you know not only what God did for you, what God does for you in forgiving your sins, but you learn to know Him as a person, as a, as a, in the person of Jesus Christ, as God in heaven. That you can come to Him in prayer and in a living communion with the living God. Not only do you know that He's holy, that He's majestic, that He holds this world in His hands, that He's the creator of everything, but also that He's your heavenly father in jesus christ that he has made you and that he's redeemed you that he's adopted you into his family it's knowing that we have sinned against this god that we deserve to be cast out and trampled on but his mercy is so great that he says i will not destroy this world that jesus came not to destroy but to save and that christ took my place and that he died for my sins. And that he took my debts upon him. That he set me free from my sins and from my bondage. That he delivered me from that eternal punishment in hell that I was destined to serve. He grants me eternal life. He grants me forgiveness of sins freely. He teaches me through His living Holy Spirit to give life, to give communion, to give access. It's knowing Him that I am His and that He is mine forever. And even now you have that eternal life and that real communion with God in heaven. Do you know the living God 
as your heavenly Father in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Redeemer, and as your Deliverer? Is this God more to you than just a dead statue that you drive by on the road? Because this is a living God. The Lord Jesus Christ says he's a high priest who lives forever, making intercession for transgressors. This is the God who communicates with you through his word and by his spirit, and you come to him in prayer. Hallowed be your name, living God, rightly. Teach me rightly to know you. You hallow his name because you know that he is coming again in the clouds of heaven to take his people to himself, to take you to himself on that great day and to destroy all the wicked forever. And then you also acknowledge him in our last thought, a God to be acknowledged. This petition, hallowed be your name, praise that God may be known more and more, more in our own lives, to acknowledge him as our God in our life, Now, we would hallow his name because he is so worthy. Because instead of casting me away, he said, no, come. Come through Jesus Christ. And that our lives would be conformed to his son, to his image, and to his perfect will. And that there is an acknowledging in your life by that spiritual submission to him and to his word and to his will. There is an acknowledging in your life as you grow in holiness to God as your, as, your, as your Lord and Master. And we acknowledge Him as our Father by faith, by trusting in His Word, by trusting in His Son, depending on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, on His promises as our only hope of salvation what he has done and what he does and who he is. Knowing that there's no way we can earn our own way to heaven like these scribes and Pharisees are trying to do. But that we can only receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and all that he has done as the gift of our salvation freely given by God. And this is to be a conscious possession a real possession, that he is mine and I am his. With that, the catechism starts that I in body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for me. Because there it's where you find favor in the sight of this God. It's here where you find acceptance, where you can come as a child adopted into the family of God into the presence of the Father, to have communion with Him. And here we pray, hallowed be your name. Because it's not only you, but it's also unbelievers who must acknowledge Him. Everything that we have in this world comes from God. But many people live as if there is no God. Psalm 14 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. People all through the ages have tried to deny that there is God. And they turned their back on Him. But we must learn to acknowledge that when we do so, we dishonor God by our sin, by our rebellion, 
by your unbelief. We have departed from him and refused to hallow his name. And even worse, we reject his mercy and his free salvation in Jesus Christ. God said he would not destroy this world with a flood. Because he has punished sin now in Lord Jesus Christ. And now he gives time for sinners to repent. And say, why would you die? But turn from your sins. And that rainbow is in the sky every time it rains. To remind us of that promise of God. That he is good and that he is merciful to a rebellious and sinful world. And he calls us to turn unto him. And that's why we pray, hallowed be thy name. That sinners may see his glory and his mercy and his salvation in Jesus Christ. That instead of turning their back on him and stealing the colors of the rainbow for their own pride and for their own sin, that they might see that it shows the very mercy of God and the reason why they are still alive in this world that he still calls them to salvation. But oh, people of God, how little do we really honor God's name? How little do we acknowledge God for every detail in our life, with every purchase or every pursuit of pleasure in this world? How much of what we do is focused on our own honor instead of God's honor? Our greatest calling and duty is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To live in His presence forever. And that should be our pursuit here on this earth. It's our greatest good to glorify Him. And any unholiness, any sin that remains in us is a dishonor to Him. And if we profess to honor God and to love Him and to follow Him, our our lives also must show that he is the supreme good in our lives and to supremely honor him in everything that we think and say and do. Because when we live for our own honor, we rob God of his honor. Every gift, every talent, every blessing that we receive comes to us from God. We must acknowledge him for these blessings. We must use it for his honor. So pray, hallowed be your name in everything that we do and everything that we receive. And God's glory is to be, be preferred over everything in this life, even the things that happen to us. When we face trials and difficulties, we must pray, hallowed be your name. Because it is in these trials that we find it so difficult to glorify and to praise God. Because we are focused on ourselves. And so we are to pray, glorify your name. Hallowed be your name. Teach me rightly to know you in the midst of this. And that thy hand is in control of every providence. That everything is led for his glory and for the good of his people. We pray. This prayer begs assistance from God for his spirit. That we can perform our duties to the glory of his name. And so he calls us, families and parents and children, 
that we gather together not only here in church, but also at home, around a table, around your devotion time. We need to pray, hallowed be your name. Do like Mary did to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus, to take that time, to show that reverence, and to, to read his word, that we would learn to know him, and that we together would rightly hallow his name and come together for that purpose, not just with a careless or distracted attitude as Martha did, but that we may truly pray and learn to do hallowed be your name. Amen.